Welcome to Making the Next Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And guys, I have to confess that I have been on a roll the past couple days. And by on a roll, I mean I haven't been doing as much reading as I normally have. Um, for the past couple days, I've been blaming my birthday and the hangover and the burnout that's associated with that. But yesterday, I had a different reason for not doing my reading. I had a meeting with one of my advisors, and we talked through uh, one of our lists. And it was generally a good meeting. There were a couple points where I was stumped, and annoyingly enough, not because I didn't know the information, but just because I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. I mean, I tried to remember uh, every single little bit of technical development that went on into uh, the revolution in the cotton industry, but of course, um, those are really finicky, and I couldn't remember whether spinning innovations happened first or weaving innovations. Anyway, but... At the end of it, there was a bigger question posed to me that I had to chew through, and it's uh, something that's a little bit more philosophical or even political. It was, what on earth is my stake in all of these stories? Why am I interested in these particular events and processes? Why does it matter? What difference does it make these stories that I'm telling about the past? So... This stems from a apparent tension in what I'm interested in. On the one hand, I'm interested in stuff that is broadly cultural. I care about meetings of people, of symbols, of rituals, of ideas, of paintings, of books, of uh, different forms of talking, uh, what in these days is summed up as discourse. But I also uh, seem to privilege a lot what are material and technological uh, factors as well. For me, the really big thing that happens in the 19th century is that fossil fuels replace organic energy. And that, rather than some change in discourse or politics or ideas, is what makes the modern world modern. There's a lot of steps that go through that. We might call fossil fuels the prime mover of modernity, and then there's lots of mediators to it. But for me, those two things are kind of in conflict. And, well, doesn't matter if they're in conflict for me. They seem to be in conflict for my advisor's perception of what I actually care about. And this was a spot-on critique because I didn't have a good answer about how these two sides of my interest connect. Not for me personally, but in the big stories that I've been telling. And so I spent the afternoon yesterday with a book on my chest, staring up idly at my ceiling, twirling my hair, having really big, like five in the morning, sophomore year thoughts about what I cared about and why I think history changes. And so I asked myself lots of questions about how I could fit in past podcast episodes into what was coming into my head as a new kind of synthesis of material and cultural history. But... That's still really half-baked, so I'm going to not talk to you guys about that today. We're going to leave it for another episode once I talk with some friends and some advisors and do some more reading and kind of kick the tires on this new idea. Instead, what I'm going to be talking about is a group of readings that I've been doing this whole time, but I haven't been talking to you guys about because I am not as great of an expert in them. Um, In the university that I go to, 
uh, not only do you have four examiners from your chosen discipline, minus history, you also have a fifth examiner from the outside field. And this examiner is meant to give you a kind of interdisciplinary breadth. It's meant to force you out of the usual disciplinary uh, uh, confines where historians only talk to other historians. For me, my outside field is sociology, particularly organizational sociology. Now, these fields, history and sociology, have been linked for a long time. Uh, there's even a word for it, historical sociology, and some of the biggest names in sociology and some names in history have been involved in historical sociology. Uh, just name a sociologist, quick. You probably said Weber, although you might have just sat there and went, name a sociologist? Brendan. Um, no, Max Weber is like the sociologist of all sociologists, and his big book the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And in this, Max Weber lays out a historical story about how changes in ideology and culture create changes in the economy. Not only is it what we call a sociological story about the underlying structures of social life, but it's also a historical story about how these things change. Now, even though the disciplines are related, and oftentimes sociologists mine history for facts and historians mine sociology for theory, there are some big differences in the discipline. Now, I want to define this kind of simply. Historians generally describe how things happen, while sociologists are more interested in why they happen. And this means that they pay attention to different things. Historians have kind of two main tasks in their jobs. First, we fix facts. We go into places where we can gather evidence and we find things that we know or can guess are true. Imagine this as going off and finding little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that are incomplete and kind of arranging them and trying to see what the picture is. The second thing, after getting all the jigsaw pieces together, is we try to make a narrative about what those jigsaw pieces mean. We try to make a story from beginning, middle, and end that gives a kind of narrative arc to this. Now, it's important to note that these two different tasks of, a, of gathering the jigsaw pieces and assembling them into some sort of picture and then drawing in the missing bits have very, very different standards of disagreement. Now, when we're gathering the facts, when we're looking at the evidence, that's kind of unimpeachable. The thing is either there or it's not there. But the problem with history is that there's not a ton of stuff often for us to make conclusions about the things that we care about. And so we need to do a lot of work scaling up from the individual facts that we have to make narratives about it. And it's in that scaling up, it's in that arrangement of the facts, in the extrapolation from those facts, the methods that we bear to take those facts and turn them into a story that matters, that we get into disagreements. And one of the big generative things for all these disagreements that historians have is that there's often, frankly, not enough facts to d distinguish between two different 
very competing interpretations. We can look at this in one of the historical disagreements that makes my hair stand up on end, that of the standard of living in the Industrial Revolution. Now, you can read books for an entire year where you have scholars disagreeing with each other vehemently about whether the Industrial Revolution led to people having better standards of living or worse standards of living. And you would learn from that not only, you know, extended discussions on the consumption basket of workers in West Riding, Yorkshire, but you would also have extended philosophical discussions about how on earth we actually measure what a good standard of living is. And then you'd have even deeper philosophical discussions about how even if you have a greater material base, that even if you're, you're, you have more food, if you're exploited, then we have to say that your standard of living is lower. Sociologists, on the other hand, are interested in why things happen. And to pin this down, they compare different cases to see if they can find the critical factors that influence particular kinds of development. So, to make these comparisons, they find things that share common elements. They look at long-term processes that they can identify in different kinds of contexts. So these are the often the big ideas that we go have circulating around modernity, capitalism, development, industrialization, but they can also be smaller uh, categories, things like um, class or gender or um, large corporations or um, organizations that uh, participate in a craft industry. And once you get an ideal type of these things, then you can gather different cases and arrange the different kinds of variables that you think might affect the thing that you're trying to explain and then make comparisons between those different variables so you can see which ones actually matter. And the reason why they do this isn't just so that they can publish a paper and say, like, here's why certain organizations over 500 people often have fewer female managers. The idea is, is that once you get these causes, then they will be applicable to other cases of a similar type. If you get enough cases together, you can find convincing, compelling regularities between them that you can expect to occur in future cases. Communist countries end up doing these particular things. Capitalist countries end up doing these particular things. It has a predictive power that's meant to be useful for people who want to understand the societies that they live in. Now, if that's just a little bit too in the weeds, I want to bring up another difference between the two disciplines, and that is style. And that can be summed up in the two disciplines watchwords, the things that if you're in a seminar in sociology or in a seminar in history, you'll hear over and over again. Now, in it wasn't until I was a professional historian um, that I heard this word on a daily basis, contingency. Historians say it all the time, and they use it to explain things all the time. This refers to the distinctive particular context that affects events. We refer to contingency to explain why things happened the way they did. Why did coffee houses arise in 18th century London? Well, there's a lot of contingent factors that can't be abstracted out to coffee houses in Paris or Rome or Austria. The word that is on the lips of his, uh, sociologists all the time that rarely passes the lips of historians is rigor. For sociologists, the quest 
to discover regularities across different cases has ended up in them going in a line of increasing methodological sophistication. When you read a sociology paper, you will see it arranged almost like a scientific paper where they set out definitions, they talk about gathering evidence, and then in pages and pages and pages of stuff that I can barely understand, they talk about the obtuse statistical methods that they use to try to tease out causality. So why do I care? Why do I care in jamming together history and sociology yet again? Is it just because the grad div of UC Berkeley forces graduate students to take an outside field? Well, for me, this is about something bigger. I'm interested in the history of Britain, not because I'm an Anglophile, not because I care about Britain in and of itself. Frankly, there's a lot of stuff about Britain that I'm bored of. Uh, I British politics completely baffle and uh, bore me. I, I don't pay a lot of attention to them when I'm reading my material, and I really should because uh, there's questions that often come to me that the answer is the Tories or the radical Tories or the Rockingham Whigs, and I just have never paid attention to that. I'm interested in Britain because I think that Britain was the first industrial economy and the first modern society. And that Britain's important not only because it kind of sets the blueprint for what industrial modernity is like, but also because it had, took a really, really active role in spreading the social structures, the cultural practices, the uses of energy, the ways of making things that dominate our lives day to day. But to figure out what in British history is merely contingent and what actually can be abstracted out to make general rules that might be applicable in different situations, you need to do both history and sociology. You need to collect data and make stories and try to figure out how things happened. And then you need to rigorously uh, compare different explanations for why things happened and try to come up with a convincing answer of what actually matters. Now, I don't just look at sociology. I study a particular kind of sociology, organizational sociology. Uh, this is the study of organizations, looking not at the sociology of big groups or of states uh, and not the sociology of individual interactions, but rather what goes on in organizations. Why am I interested in this? Well, uh, there's a strong strain in some historical organizational sociology that argues that one of the biggest changes to everyday life that happened with modernity is the rise of the modern organization. And if this seems really uh, odd to you, well, just I would like you to think about the day that you're about to have, or you're having, or you had and think of how many times you interacted with people who were acting not on their own behalf, but rather as an agent of an organization, and how many times you yourself acted as an agent of an organization, of how much of the food that you ate came as the result of organizational action, of how much the, the TV that you watch was produced by organizations. I mean, we can just go through every single thing in the room that I'm sitting here in and describe it as the outcome not of individual activity, but rather of organizational activity. What makes this distinctive is in 1700, 
Organizations were rather thin on the ground. There were organizations in the church, in the state, there were some social clubs, some charitable groups, uh, and of course the army. But economic and social and cultural life were not dominated by organizations in the same way that they are now. And I haven't seen a lot of history that appreciates what I'm calling an organizational revolution. The vast spread of organizations and the cultural capital that people need to participate in organizations. Most people who study these things look at the 19th century in America to figure out the origin of modern organizations. They look at things like railroads and textile factories. But as you've been listening to this podcast, you can see that in the 18th century and in the 19th century in Britain, there's similar kinds of organizational developments going on that are important. So I think that we can use the tools of modern organizational sociology to look at developments in 18th and 19th century Britain and show how new ways of making organized groups of people are changing the fundamental nature of society and culture. So why haven't I mentioned this before? Well, I've been doing these readings off and on, um, and they're often really, really difficult and different. I lack the kind of vocabulary that I do with history that allows me to skim a book in three hours. As I'm reading them, I find myself getting sleepy, of having to reread things, of getting only 30 pages in, in, in an hour, which is really, really long, and then at the end of the day, still needing to go over them again to try to solidify what arguments they're making. Um, and so this has made it really difficult for me to make a podcast out of these, these readings because I've had trouble making these through lines. Uh, to go back to my original metaphor, I'm able to get the facts, but I'm struggling to make the narratives. Thanks very much for this kind of wonky and methodological episode. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, with stuff about how distant strangers uh, get connected in the modern world. Thanks very much for listening. I have to thank Duncan Barton for our image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps, which is why podcasters are always telling you to do it. And check out our uh, website at historian.live. Uh, if you want to ask me a question, go to the uh, post that says, ask me a question and ask me a question. I'm going to try to gather enough of them together so that I can do an episode in which I just respond to listener questions. But that means that if you're listening and I don't know who you are, you should probably come out of the woodwork and ask me something. Um, well, thanks very much. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow.